Welcome to Between Two Parties, the People's Podcast. This is your host, Bernadette Pinkowski mckee My mission is to invite podcast listeners on an inspirational and empowering journey into the world of Oregon politics and social issues. I believe that when we, the people, learn how to navigate the political landscape and reclaim our power, we will form a unified movement that creates solution-focused change outside of the Democratic and Republican parties that are corrupted by the establishment at this time. My goal is to be in service to all Oregonians. So with that, let's get started. Good afternoon between two party listeners. This is your host, Bernadette McKee. I am very grateful to have John DePaula in our studio today. Good afternoon, John. How you doing? I'm good, Bernadette. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. No, thank you so much for um, coming on the show today. Um, you have some really exciting news to share, and I'm great that you, you came on to, to share it with the listeners. And so we could just start out... Um, to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you became interested in the environment. Well, um, I'm a, a grandson of Italian immigrants that uh-huh. grew up in New Jersey, and New Jersey is the Garden State, uh, or it was, uh-huh. still is. And um, I've had a love of nature all my life, and my my mom was. You couldn't get in the car without her pointing out a beautiful tree or a plant or look at that view or something. Uh-huh. And so I just, uh, and I grew up at a time where there were no screens or anything to do indoors and your parents opened the door in the morning and said, be home for dinner. And you went out <laughs> and adventures and there were lots of woods and little ponds and creatures and things to explore. So right. it's been that way. Uh-huh. Um, and... Uh, I, uh, through a long story, I ended up uh, going to uh, medical school, and when I was in medical school, I lived in a little cabin in the woods that was part of a commune that was started uh, at the turn of the century, around 1900, mm-hmm. and um, it, it, it was 100 acres, it was a farm, and uh, the people that took over the commune were, were guided by this uh, economist, and I forget his name right now, but um, you could not own the land. Mm-hmm. They were leaseholds, and so they had 99-year leases on one-acre plots of land, and then uh, people could build stuff or put stuff on there. And then they had a, a regulation that you couldn't cut down a tree. You had to have the whole community had to meet and tell you if you could cut down a tree. So oh, we wow! this place, and it was very wild. Uh-huh. Um, when I first moved into this little cabin, I had to cut the vegetation away from the, the outside of the cabin to let air in because it was starting to you know cause moisture problems. So I lived there for four years and I heated my house with wood and uh, I was in the forest and there were wildflowers that came up and I kind of tended to everything to make it, to op- optimize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I got into medical school and I came to Oregon and I practiced as an orthopedic surgeon here for 40 years. Oh. And of course, you know, we're Oregonians now and 
we love nature we love our state it's so beautiful mm -hmm. anybody that lives here understands that right if you're not from here you may not get that <laughs> if you're from here you do so like all other Oregonians I love I love the state I love nature and so one of the things that upset me uh, in uh, leading up to the 2020 election is that the uh, the Republicans didn't have a platform on the environment mm -hmm. and that the Democrats and many people around the world had this sort of globalist platform about somehow changing the energy infrastructure was going to fix all the degradation that had happened to the planet as a result of humans. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt that they had identified the problem. I think that we do have a problem with degradation of nature. We, they can measure it. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a science guy, and so they can measure the loss of bird species and animal species, and they, you know, there are organizations that track animals and wild creatures and where they live and don't live. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I don't feel like anybody was really addressing the true answer to the problem of our loss of biodiversity, and uh, the water tables are depleted. We have, we see. Uh, droughts uh, in eastern Oregon. Mm -hmm. and I was very frustrated that nobody was talking about that. So I ended up running for Congress mm -hmm. in the 5th District, which is a very rural district. Mm -hmm. Lots of farms, lots of forests, lots of lakes and rivers and mountains. Mm -hmm. And so um, I did not win the primary. Uh, a very capable person has won the election, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I decided I still one of the one of the reasons was I, I wanted to go to Congress but the other reason was I wanted to spearhead an environmental policy mm -hmm. that made sense for all Oregonians and all people everywhere mm -hmm. that was going to fix the problem mm -hmm. and so I, I created this idea called the Oregon Green Plan um, and uh, it's a instead of a top-down Kind of a solution where we see now where these globalist organizations and political parties and big industry are mm -hmm. dictating to the people what they'll have to do and put up with mm -hmm. um, and that their you know their solution is the only thing that we can talk about um, i i think uh, they've hijacked what we used to call the environmental movement mm -hmm. as i was coming up and uh and uh, so a lot of funding and a lot of energy is being misdirected. It's not going to solve the problem. And mm -hmm. if you live in Oregon and you love what we Oregonians love, you mm -hmm. want the problem to be solved. You don't want to get to the end of the road and go, oh, we took a wrong turn back there. Right. You know, so, so that's where this all came from. Yeah, no, that is really exciting. Thank you for sharing that um, story. So can you tell us a little bit more about what um, the Oregon Green Plan is and the history of the environmental movement? Well, um, first of all, I'd kind of like to set this up about um, how, you know, how do we speak to people that don't necessarily have the same worldview that we have, mm -hmm. um, yet 
we probably have a lot in common and we probably agree on a lot of things, mm-hmm. but we sort of speak a different language. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of interesting research on um, uh, persuasion. How do you persuade someone that your ideas have enough merit that they should take a look at them? Mm-hmm. Instead of uh, kind of a uh, prosecutorial view of uh, your crime is that you don't believe, you don't um, agree with me on everything, and mm-hmm. therefore you need to be prosecuted and called names and put down, and, and I get to say you're crazy, and you know goes back and forth, and nothing gets done. Exactly. We're, we're both frustrated. Mm-hmm. We're just looking at the problem yep. through a different lens. So. There's two kinds of people there, uh, and this is from a book by Thomas Sowell, who's a very, uh, very highly regarded and, and famous uh, econ- economist. Mm-hmm. And um, he analyzed this, and he called, and he wrote a book called *A Conflict of Visions*, about why two people can be engaged in solving the same problem, but they just can't communicate. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because the way uh, we think, and he broke it down into two basic categories. There's the unconstrained uh, person mm-hmm. uh, and the constrained person. Now, a constrained person uh, loves history. They like systems. Mm-hmm. They like to, you know, have things in neat order. And their their main passion is the process. They want to make sure that there's a fair process, that everyone gets exposed to that process mm-hmm. in the same way, and then they're willing to accept a variety of outcomes as long as we went through that process. Because mm-hmm. the process assures fairness. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, if it comes out some way that isn't ideal for me, I'm good with that because we, cause, you know, we're a free country, we followed the Constitution, or mm-hmm. we followed the the uh, the outline of the rules in that particular situation. Well, then there's the unconstrained person. They hate history. They <coughs> hate processes. They don't see things. They don't think of things in words. They think more in images. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that they're looking for uh, is a, uh, uh, a virtuous outcome. Mm-hmm. They want something that, hey, I'd feel really good if it looked like this. And and they don't really care about the process. And they don't really care about the people running the process, whether they've been behaving themselves or not. Mm-hmm. They just care about the outcome. And so you have these two different ways of looking at a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need to do is we need to start speaking each other's languages that some of the terms you use may make me identify with your political affiliation or mm-hmm. your uh, life worldview, mm-hmm. um, and they may like be, you know, be warning signs for me. And things I say may be warning signs for you, and you're going to sit there and I say a certain phrase, and you go, oh boy, here it comes. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I think we, we have to get comfortable talking to each other and using each other's language in order to make progress. And to just listen. You know, yeah. I, I think in our society, it's uh, 
a lot of it comes from we have a point to prove and we're focused on proving our point instead of just being open to the interaction and and listening to one another and not being in a place of judgment of I'm right, you're wrong. Just, right. yeah, having open dialogue. Well, and I think part of the problem is just that we've been convinced that somehow we're in different tribes. Mm-hmm. And really, I grew up under the, the, the statement that we're a melting pot of yeah. all different kinds of people, all different religions from mm-hmm. all over the world. And the thing that we feel is important is the American experiment and what we have in common is we're all Americans yeah. and we all believe that our country is great and that we can accomplish things together. No matter what our differences are, we always come together mm-hmm. because we're a member of this much bigger group mm-hmm. uh, and uh, our particular origins or beliefs don't really fragment us out of that group. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing that can fragment you out of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I think that uh, we have to uh, develop a common cultural vision, mm-hmm. a mental picture, and an emotional <clears throat> commitment to something that brings us together, which is our beautiful state. Exactly. You know, we love our state. We're proud of the beauty. Uh, we want to preserve it for future generations. Yeah. We want to preserve and restore our natural spaces. We want to understand how to be in harmony with nature to enjoy a stable and productive climate. Mm-hmm. We, these are all things we have in common. Right. Uh, yet no one's showing us a path. Right. So the Oregon Green Plan is a path. It's a pathway to getting what we all already want. Um, and uh, my hope is that um, we need to come up with solutions that solve the problems that we see mm-hmm. and don't make them worse, that they don't impose a hardship on people, mm-hmm. uh, and that they are things that are practical and readily available that we can do, mm-hmm. and that they can achieve all the goals of all the people in the tribe. And, you know, you may say, well, I want to, you know, temperature below this level. We need to have carbon dioxide emissions below this level. We mm-hmm. need to, you know, solve the problems of droughts and all these other issues. And either through education uh, or collaboration, uh, we can do all that right now. And and I agree with you. And the other thing that I'd like to point out of what I've noticed has changed is, like, when I was in school in the discussion of the scientific method, is everybody, you know, in, in class, people would create their own hypothesis, right? right? And then you would test your hypothesis. Then everybody would get together and they would talk about the results that they found. And it was in a very open forum and you right. were learning from each other. And I'm kind of curious when science changed that it seems like we're now hearing that, you know, whether it be with like climate change or with other situations, that there's only one science. And it's, I would love to be able for us to get back again to having a wide variety of different viewpoints brought to the forefront for discussion and then testing them, you know. Right. Well, um, I can tell you from my personal experience, having mm-hmm. been in medicine for 40 years, uh-huh. that the world went from what you just described um, and Basically, uh, there were political and financial 
powers, mm -hmm. which we're interested in becoming more powerful mm -hmm. and uh, wealthier. And they um, took the, the helm of medicine away from doctors. Medicine used to be like a cottage industry. You'd go to medical school, you'd work hard, mm -hmm. all your friends were out partying and drinking every night and you were home studying and mm -hmm. you know you missed Christmas because you had to be on call and all that stuff mm -hmm. but then you know you got to run your own business and you, uh, you had a generous fee schedule so you could live a good life mm -hmm. and, and uh, have security mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, what happened was these uh, centralizing powers mm -hmm. um, politicians and insurance carriers uh, started saying, well, how come when you go to the doctor in New York, it costs more than when you go to your doctor in Montana? It ought to cost the same. Well, that's ridiculous. Nothing costs the same in mm. New York and Montana. Uh -huh. They're different markets. Totally different. Completely, completely different. And so, um, and then they say, well, why, don't, why aren't there the same outcomes? You know, why don't you get the same results? And so what happened is they started uh, putting together guidelines. Um, mostly by committee. Mm -hmm. They would get committees of experts. They would look at the science that was available, which was usually not adequate to create a guideline. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they just didn't want it. They just wanted the, the, they acted like constrained people. They wanted to put mm -hmm. everything in, you know, if this, then that, and you know, if that, then this, and you go down, sort of progress through an algorithm to get to the right answer. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they created these guidelines and they tried to standardize medicine, which is really an art. Mm -hmm. And you can't standardize the uh, relationship between two people that are coming together in confidentiality to solve an intimate and very concerning problem. You know, our health is... We're all uniquely different. Right. And so they try to, they try to make everything the same. And... Uh, and then they put they imposed the same computer system. It's called Epic mm -hmm. uh, on in all the hospitals in the whole country, and then push it out to the doctors' offices. So mm -hmm. then you know you just everything starts looking the same, and the doctors. Uh, I think now the younger doctors, um, they don't they're not required to like. If I was on call and a trauma came in, mm -hmm. and that patient was in trouble, I didn't go. I stayed with that patient until we figured out what was going on. I'd sometimes be in the hospital for several days, sleeping on a gurney in the hallway or something. Mm -hmm. And now the, they said, well, you know, the, it's too much stress on the young doctors and training, and mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're making mistakes uh, because they're tired. Um, and so they implemented shifts. So the doctors come in, they work shifts. So you start feeling like you're a production worker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's say, you know, I'm with you all day and I establish trust with you and we're going through a really harrowing kind of experience trying to guide you through that keep you comfortable and then mm -hmm. I look at my watch and say oh, it's six o'clock yeah <laughs> you know Fred's gonna come in and take over and then uh -huh. then the process has to start all over again and uh, long story short uh, they didn't reduce the amount of errors um, yeah. and um, uh, but I think it it uh, degraded medicine so yep. what was before science and each individual doctor had his exposure to the science and we had meetings where they would bring experts together and kind of shower us 
with all the latest research, but mm -hmm. then you go back to your situation and you implement that science in your practice the way it needed to be. And, uh, and so now the same thing has happened with all science. There are yeah. financial and government agencies that are saying, we have the science, here are the guidelines, we're going to publish them, you follow these guidelines. Yeah. And you'll stay out of trouble. Well, and I was I was really grateful because last week, you know, you sent me all of the documentation for me to research before this podcast. And honestly, um, as I was reading through it, it's like, wow, this is some really good news. And it's not what you're hearing in, in mainstream uh, media. And so I really, for the listeners, um, I'm, I'm so excited to have John on today to, to share this information and to really, you know, just take it all in and then and then research it on your own. Right. But there there's a lot of hope here. And there were some things that I was like, but wait, what? Like, <laughs> that's not how I understood it. So, yeah. yeah, so. And it's not hard to understand. No, it's very common sense, straightforward. Yeah. Like, yeah. and you have everything all cited and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I have tons and tons of references uh, and I'm hoping to set up a website uh-huh um, that may take another month or so so um you know if you if you're worried that we're headed for a climate disaster i, I know how you feel um i was concerned myself mm -hmm. and i decided to research it uh, so i could understand it better mm -hmm. maybe be at peace with it um and uh you know so uh i felt the same way everybody else did and I found that we, what we need to do is we need to understand the history of climate mm -hmm. and the history of environmentalism, mm -hmm. what we used to call environmentalism. So uh, in the beginning, uh, there was John Muir mm -hmm. in the 1800s, and we heard that name before, and he uh, was a biologist, and he traveled around and in the Wild West before uh, people were here, and, mm -hmm. and he wrote about the, the beauty and uh, he started the environmental movement in the 1800s. And the, the idea was uh, that there was competition between humans and nature. You know, we're humans, we're over here, nature's over there. Mm -hmm. uh, in order for us to do what we need to do, we need to conquer nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he felt that there was too much uh, exploitation of natural resources and it was impacting uh, our wild environments. Mm -hmm. And then that was kind of what was going on until the 1960s, until they began talking about ecology. And this is a study of the relationship between different organisms. Mm -hmm. And uh, their, their research uh, identified two major causes of poor water quality, which were uh, uh, phosphate detergents and nit nitrate mm -hmm. uh, fertilizers. And so there was this big thing about Phosphate-free detergents is maybe before your time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we still hear about the, <clears throat> the nitrates uh, in the fertilizers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people went out and they addressed these problems and they cleaned up some streams and rivers and mm -hmm. uh, there was some success there. Right. Uh, and then uh, came a, a movement called environmentalism, which uh, it was a political and an ethical movement and uh, they wanted to protect nature from the impact of humans and there were two schools of thought one was the human-centered school 
mm-hmm. which felt that nature was a resource that be managed or exploited for human purposes. Mm-hmm. And then there was the nature-centered group, which felt that nature in and of itself had value and uh, that it shouldn't be exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the this nature-centered uh, approach was the more virtuous uh, position uh, that uh, now has been hijacked uh, by a group of people that actually intend on exploiting nature very significantly and Mm -hmm. uh, making the situation worse. Mm -hmm. So they've taken our heart and they've captured it with an image that we're going to have what environmentalism was meant to give us and they've introduced this new thing Mm -hmm. uh, and they attach a noble outcome to it. Then uh, in 1993 Al Gore came along with the and some other folks came along with uh, climate change. Um, and uh, he made a statement in his Inconvenient Truth presentation, mm-hmm. which he estimates he's presented thousands of times. And he said, whatever the eventual impacts, there's a need to immediately reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And this can be achieved with current technologies and in an affordable way. So that second part of the statement has been thrown out. He doesn't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's promoting a, a different uh, <clears throat> path than mm-hmm. his original one. And then after that, uh, we started hearing climate crisis, climate chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just the language got worse and worse. And you can go online and see images of the globe on fire and all this stuff and. Uh, it seems, it seems like it's more fear-based yeah. than solution-based. Well, they've scared a whole generation of young people yes. uh, into thinking that we went out in, in our evil ways, have destroyed the planet, and that they, uh, they're they not going to live to a, a ripe old age because the planet's going to self-destruct before that. Yes. And that, you know, it amazes me how often we see that language, mm-hmm. climate change, climate change. They'll be talking about some other... Like, I, I belong to the Audubon Society and uh, uh, the uh, uh, Nature uh, Conservancy and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, the Ocean Conservancy and all these groups. And they'll be talking about some perfectly fine science and then they throw in climate change. Mm-hmm. This was caused by, you know, cloud cover and uh, uh, transpiration of trees and climate change. Well, mm-hmm. I get one and two, but... W- how do you connect three to whatever it is they're talking about? Right. And, and that's kind of why we're having our chat today. So I think we, we need to calmly and courageously retake the conversation about environmentalism to mm-hmm. slowly and steadily s- substitute that the narrative with truth. Um, and uh, we can do this by understanding our fellow Americans that don't think like we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, start deciding that there are parts of the language that we can both speak and that we both feel need to be addressed. And and first of all, Mm -hmm. any credible scientist agrees that there is climate change. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, 
So what we need to do is we need to look at the history of climate science and what they're doing now and all their projections and theories about what's going to happen in the future. They're only looking at uh, 150 years of climate history. Oh, wow. And climate, uh, climate trends are in thousands and sometimes millions of years. Mm-hmm. And so looking at 150 years uh, is like looking at a speck of sand on the beach and trying to imagine what's what's going on on the rest right. of the beach. So first of all, the thing that I would ask everyone is, is carbon dioxide a pollutant? Is it, is it toxic to life? And the answer to that question is no. Without carbon dioxide, there would be no life because carbon dioxide is a nutrient for plants. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, life web or life chain, mm-hmm. food chain, uh, it starts with carbon dioxide being converted to oxygen through photosynthesis in plants, starting with single cell plants and moving all the way to giant thousand year old sequoias. Right. They all, they all do this uh, photosynthesis. And they also transpire. They uh, uh, they produce water, mm-hmm. water vapor, uh, and so if you think of them, uh, we respire. Mm-hmm. We breathe in and out, mm-hmm. and we have water vapor, and we have carbon dioxide and oxygen mm-hmm. going out. Well, plants have the same thing. Uh, the only thing that's different is it's uh, carbon dioxide in and oxygen out, and with mm-hmm. us, it's oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. And mm-hmm. then our carbon dioxide goes back to the plants that gave it to us, so that they can cycle it again that's called the carbon cycle mm-hmm. and uh, so that's that's the first thing and uh, the other uh, interesting fact is that uh, growers when they want to produce more uh, crops mm-hmm. uh, in their greenhouses they pump carbon dioxide into the greenhouses because they know that will stimulate the plants to grow more vigorously uh, and, and uh, produce more vegetation uh-huh yeah, well, that was one of the things that I was a big aha for moment for me because, from what I understood with climate change, is like CO two was a bad thing, the enemy, and that we had to like lower it, like that, and that the rates were off the charts. Right. And so then I'm I'm reading your information. I'm like, whoa, wait, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that they well, actually thrive with it. Yeah, and you know my information is readily available on the internet. Mm-hmm. There's lots of websites that follow the climate uh, that have nothing to do with global organizations, politicians, or scientists mm-hmm. uh, who are just explaining what the data shows, what they have measured, mm-hmm. and what those measurements, um, what conclusions you can reach from looking at those measurements. Right. And, uh, so this is a little hard to do on a podcast because... It's kind of like giving a haircut over the phone. <laughs> it, it really helps to have people look at mm-hmm. charts. And, and but it's not complicated, but it just gives you an idea of what the trends look like over time. Right. So uh, what's happened is, you know, the CO2 has been going up. Mm-hmm. And the temperature has been going up recently. And the whole idea of uh, the Green New Deal is that they trace this back to 150 years ago 
when uh, we first discovered kerosene, which was actually a waste product of uh, oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and they used kerosene uh, for heat and mm -hmm. light. Uh, and it really changed the game uh, because people could stay warm mm -hmm. and they could read at night. They weren't, you know, stuck in darkness. Uh, and uh, and then uh, they discovered the the potential of petroleum products, mm -hmm. and uh, we used that to generate energy. Uh, they also used coal, mm -hmm. uh, and over the years. Uh, uh, the population, uh, I think, went from uh, 3 billion people to 8 billion people mm -hmm. in 150 years. Um, and um, so the CO2 and the temperature have been rising mm -hmm. steadily across that time. But it was, in the very beginning, there was very, comparatively, there were way fewer people. Mm -hmm. There was way less uh, industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet the curve started to go up. And then when we got after World War II, there was this very, very rapid mm -hmm. uh, There was a very rapid uptick mm -hmm. in the amount of fossil fuels mm -hmm. uh, that were being used and the amount of emissions. Uh, and uh, despite this, mm -hmm. The uh, the uh, temperature and the CO the temperature and the CO two went up slowly, but mm -hmm. despite all of that, the end effects uh, we haven't seen them worsen during that period of time. In fact, uh, in the seventies, for mm -hmm. about twenty years, as the CO two went up, the temperature went down. Oh, really? Yeah, for twenty years. Oh, wow! And so they're really, you know, part of what the the narrative is is that there's a uh, a relationship between carbon dioxide and the global temperature. And yet, uh, if you look at the history, there's clearly not a relationship mm -hmm. between carbon dioxide and global temperature. They're completely independent. Uh -huh. They're not, they don't, they don't really, you can't see really an effect on one another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what's happened in uh, recent years, since the uh, 1960s, as the carbon dioxide levels and the temperature have gone up, mm -hmm. the productivity of uh, food production uh, in the world has gone way, way up. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> in fact, uh, back in the 1900s, 90% uh, of the population was in poverty and hunger, and now it's been reduced to 10%. And that's not only because of the energy that's produced, but... Mm -hmm. uh, and potentially the carbon dioxide emissions, but also uh, because of fer uh, fertilizers. So while we know that fertilizers can have some ill effects if they're not mm -hmm. used responsibly, mm -hmm. uh, they did bring the world out of poverty. Right. Because you could produce so much more food in a smaller space mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, it, it was revolutionary. Which then affects people's nutrition, which increases life expectancy right. and, and yeah. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is many of the medicines and, and uh, the drugs and things that we use are based on uh, petroleum, mm -hmm. fossil fuels. Yeah. And, uh, I look around the room here and I can't see really anything that <laughs> could have been created that could have been done without fossil fuels. Yeah. You know, uh, the paint on the furnishings, the microphone. Uh, the, the cover on the microphone, your 
the rug. <laughs> yoga pants are probably synthetics that are derived from petroleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so that's happened. But you know, it's it's uh, helped us feed the world. Um, and so, does carbon dioxide make the temperature rise and contribute to global warming? That clearly, it doesn't. When you look back. Uh, 600 million years. Wow, yeah. Now back then, the carbon dioxide level was at 7,000 parts per million. That's how they measure that. And today, it's at 411 parts per million. Wait, okay. So can you repeat that again? So how many years ago it was at 760 million years ago, it was at 7,000 parts per million. Oh, wow. And now it's at 400 parts per million. Quite low. In right. fact, today's carbon dioxide level is the lowest. It's is at historic lows. It's not at the very lowest point. It was at its very lowest point in about 1850 mm-hmm. when the climate change narrative begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that point in time, without human influence, because there were no fossil fuels at mm-hmm. that time, the carbon dioxide, for some reason, uh, almost reached uh, a critical level where it would no longer support life. And we would have had uh, famine, uh, forests would have disappeared, we would have had, uh, you know, the Sahara Desert used to be a forest, they mm-hmm. used to farm it. Uh, and, uh, and so when the, uh, uh, if the carbon dioxide goes down that low, then it can't support plant life and therefore can't support the rest of life in the world. So there would have been a lot of death and, and uh, deprivation if, if it had gone down much lower. So we're just coming out of a critically low point in carbon dioxide where most wow. of us wouldn't be here today because our relatives wouldn't have survived. Mm-hmm. And we're just just slowly pulling out and we're still at some of the lowest levels in the history of the planet. And there's this chaos and crisis and just hysteria. That uh, the earth being, is on fire. Yeah, that is being projected. Mm-hmm. And wow, likewise, fascinating. The temperature is at some of its lowest levels in the history of the planet. In fact, we're just coming out of an ice age. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so we're just emerging from an ice age. And um, so um, if you look at recent times, Uh human history, well, you say, well, you know, 600 million years ago, it was 7,000 parts per million. That that was toxic to human survival, right? Mm -hmm. So there couldn't be any humans at those levels, so why are we talking about that? Well, uh, 7,000 parts per million is the top level that they allow our astronauts to have in their uh, environment in the space stations, that they can have up to 7,000 parts per million. And in submarines, where people are in these environments for months, the the maximum is 6,000 parts per million. So we allow our most elite military uh, and intelligence people to live in an environment that's two was it two hundred times more carbon dioxide than we are seeing globally today. Wow! So um, trying to connect those dots. Now these are real things. Mm-hmm. These are, <clears throat> these measurements are made you know using very sophisticated science and are looked at by experts all over the world. Mm-hmm. They all agree on this, and yet you expect me to believe that. 
we're currently at the lowest CO2 in the history of the planet and that if it goes up, if it doubles, that's a problem when, you know, we know that our military people can live in an environment where it's 20 times higher. Wow. And we also know from looking at history that there is no relationship between temperature and carbon dioxide. When one mm -hmm. goes up, the other one might go up with it for a while, but then it'll drop down and they just independently or squiggly lines across the graph. Now, mm -hmm. if they move together, they would look like two geese in formation. They would always go up and down together. together. And they never do that, ever. They never do that. Wow. And so, you know, the narrative, you know, mm -hmm. when you just look, how, what have we been talking, 20 minutes? Yeah, right around 30, yeah. Yeah, 30 minutes, things start to come apart and you go, well, maybe I don't believe all this. Maybe I need to hear more. I need to find out more information. There's plenty of information by different people all over the world mm -hmm. uh, that are scientists. They're not politicians. They're not in business. They don't make any money from this. They don't get any fame. The mm -hmm. media won't allow them to have any fame. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, so let, let's. So that's over the course of human history. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's look at. Um, let's look at present time. Okay. So if we look at the history of uh, human human history back uh, to 2000 BC, mm -hmm. that human history thrived, humans thrived during history, during the warmest times when the climate was the warmest. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the Bronze Age, which we where we study that oh they made, did all these had all this advancement and there's all this prosperity and mm -hmm. and the and uh, the great civilizations of the Babylonians and the Assyrians well at that time uh, the temperature went up higher than it ever been in history uh, for about let me see looks like about five five hundred years or so oh. and. Um, they were growing millet in Scandinavia at that time, which today only grows in subtropical climates. Wow, they were growing millet, millet up in, in Scandinavia. In the northern area. Okay. Right. And uh, then when the temperature dropped, it caused crop failures, pestilence, and mass depopulation. And we went through uh, what are called the Greek Dark Ages. Uh-huh. Because the temperature had dropped and it wasn't as ideal for human life and other life. There wasn't wow. enough food to hunt and grow. Mm -hmm. They couldn't, the growing season wasn't long enough to provide food for all the people that needed the food. Mm -hmm. And wow. then in the Roman warm age, it warmed up again. And at that time they were growing citrus trees in Northern Ireland. Oh, wow. Which now we all know citrus grows in the tropics or uh -huh. Southern California and Florida. Florida, yeah. Yeah. And then in mid the medieval warm period, uh, they were growing barley on Greenland. And then we entered the ice little ice age and a third of the population of Iceland perished and a third of the world population perished because the temperature dropped and the, what what happens is that the people that, that the majority of people on Earth live in the northern hemisphere. Eighty percent and twenty percent live in the southern hemisphere, and that uh, wow. when the temperature dropped, that they couldn't grow crops, 
in the northern parts of the human civilization, mm -hmm. and so those people started to die uh, because uh, of the cold. And the very interesting thing, a modern fact, is that more people die of the cold than they do of the heat. And, uh, wow. and we're facing uh, some cold times. So just keeping that in perspective, I mean, warm is good. Uh, CO2 seems to be good. Good. Why are we upset about it being warmer and having more CO2 around? And the other thing that they don't talk about is the human adaptation to the climate. Um, you say, oh, well, the sea level's going to rise. Well, the sea level rose in the Netherlands hundreds of years ago, and they figured out how to, how to, uh, how to, how to counteract that. Mm -hmm. And much of their country is below sea level. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was without any technology. What, what could we do today if we were facing the same problem? I mean, we could certainly adapt. Right. Uh, and so they, they always take that out of the, equa the equation. So then they, and the other thing <coughs> that you have to understand is that sea level rises in millimeters. Mm -hmm. So they measure sea level rise in millimeters, and it's been steady over the last 150 years. It's uh, raised... 13 inches total during this terrible time we're talking about. Right. And that's just, uh, I think it's uh, just a few millimeters a year. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I would like to go back to the whole thing is that a lot of these narratives are forgetting the ability for the body to be able to adapt, you know? how humans, we can adapt and we can acclimate to different changes. Right. Well, and you we're know. very inventive. Right. Know, we create clothing, we create infrastructure, we create housing to protect us against the elements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the whole thing about uh, hurricanes uh, is the reason that there's the hurricanes today, the, the, the amount of damage in dollars is so much higher is because uh, we populate the landscape right up mm -hmm. to the oceans now and we didn't do that 150 years ago yep. so a hurricane could have come through and nobody would have known it because yep. nobody lived there yeah well and now they say well it's worse than ever because look at all the the damage it causes well that's because we live there right well and the human body is really uh, miraculous and its ability to create homeostasis within itself and in mm -hmm. and, and healing itself if you give it what it needs but mother nature is the same way as it mother nature has an incredible ability to heal itself Absolutely. if it gets what it needs and so a lot of what you're talking about here and more as you're going to get into it is there's ways that we humans can support mother nature to help bring her back into balance and heal right where she needs to right. you know so that brings up the question, well, just how much CO2 is in the atmosphere? Mm-hmm. Did you read that far? I did. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask you about water vapor. <laughs> What's in water vapor? Yeah. So, or greenhouse gases, excuse me. Yeah. So <clears throat> in, uh, in Earth's atmosphere, in the whole atmosphere, uh -huh. it's 78% uh, nitrogen. Mm-hmm. It's 21% oxygen, mm -hmm. and it's less than 1% uh, ozone, mm -hmm. which is six one-hundredths of 1%, mm -hmm. 
and uh, CO2, which is four one-hundredths of one percent. Mm -hmm. So the CO2 makes up this tiny, tiny, less than one percent of the total gases in our atmosphere that support life. And Which they call the greenhouse gases, correct? If I remember correctly? Uh, well, the greenhouse gases are a portion of that. I'll okay. talk about that next. So the uh, 400 parts per million. So how do we get a wrap our heads around 400 parts per million? Right. So if you took uh, a little block that's one inch square, mm -hmm. like maybe a little bit bigger than a dice or maybe a big one of the big jumbo-sized dice, uh -huh. and you lined up 400 of those, that would equal 33 feet. It would fit on the lot that this facility is on. Uh-huh. If you, and of the remaining 999,600 mm -hmm. parts per million, if you lined them up, they would make a line 15 miles long. Wow. So that's the difference, that's gives you an idea of how much of the the atmosphere is CO2 and how much of it is other stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the other question that people might ask is, CO2 a major greenhouse gas? And actually, uh, it is a minor greenhouse gas. Um, and uh, it's uh, less than 4% of the greenhouse gases mm -hmm. and methane is less than 0.4%, 0 0.04%, I'm sorry. So That's it's not the cows that are creating our problem. Well, no, and the other thing is they say, well, the methane, <laughs> the methane, um, there was just a paper out on this and I'm a little, I don't want to misquote it, but mm -hmm. the, the, that the methane has, uh, 300 times more impact on the ozone layer, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's it, it lasts, its lifetime is 3,000% less. Oh, wow. So when you look at, even though there's more of it, it's mm -hmm. not around long enough to really make a difference. But so they, so common thing to uh, distort science is just tell part of the story. Right. And uh, in this case, they're saying that the CO2 is historic, rising at historic rates, well, in the past 150 years, uh -huh. but not historic when you think of the whole history of the planet. They don't talk about, what. well, what part of history are you talking about? Right. You know? So right. that's where this methane stuff comes from. And water vapor is actually 95% of the greenhouse gases. Which is made up of oxygen and nitrogen, right? Hydrogen right? and oxygen. Uh, uh, yeah. H2O. Yeah. And it's, uh, I was just reading some things about how uh, there's some recent verification of uh, a concept that the deforestation that occurred in those 150 years may mm -hmm. be the big problem mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you removed uh, uh, a uh, carbon sink mm -hmm. where it can absorb carbon out of the, out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, something else that affects... Uh, the temperature of the planet or is the cloud cover. Mm -hmm. When there are less clouds, the sun gets through and heats the surface of the earth more. If there's more clouds, it reflects the sunlight away and keeps the, the planet from overheating. Mm -hmm. And so the cloud cover, particularly in the southern part of the planet, 
has a lot to do with uh, the temperature. Wow. And now they're saying, well, with, with the deforestation, I think 75% deforestation of the planet over the history of man, yep. that that has caused a reduction uh, in the amount of photosynthesis. It's caused a reduction in the <clears throat> amount of transpiration by plants where they can push out uh, water vapor. Mm -hmm. uh, and it takes away the cover, the covering of the earth. So these yep. physical effects uh, of deforestation caused by man's uh, development uh, patterns, of mm -hmm. uh, how we clear land for uh, agriculture and housing and mm -hmm. all these things are all contributors to potential global warming, also contributor to a uh, potential uh, rise in uh, well, CO2 because mm -hmm. we don't have enough trees to absorb the CO2. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, that's kind of where I'm going. Mm -hmm. uh, is it's more nature-based, and and that changing the kind of energy we use isn't going to make any difference. No, uh, to, because it's not addressing the problem that we're all really concerned about. So uh, through reading your your information, um, what I got out of this is that this situation can be corrected and that would be by us focusing on planting more trees more plants right. that can yeah paying attention to how we develop land right um, yeah, i live nearby and there's a couple housing projects going in and a few years ago i i stopped servicing a certain medical facility because mm -hmm. it, I used to drive on this beautiful country road and mm -hmm. country road and I'd pop out by the medical facility and I'd do my thing and come home at night and mm -hmm. just relaxing ride home and then they put in somewhere close to four or five thousand houses in a high school out there. <clears throat> they have a two lane country road and you can just sit out there for two hours and not be able to get home yep. because of the traffic and they've They've deforested and stripped the land, yep. and so they have flooding problems and all these other things. So, uh, well, my my nickname in the neighborhood is the Lorax because I I've lived in Westland and Lake Oswego for several years, and um, that's what drove you know brought me to this neighborhood is because it was like here's this little forest. But right. it's close to everything. It's like I, I felt like I lived in the woods. Well, with all the building and have in like a lot of the their older homes and stuff. Well, contractors come in, buy it, and then they clear cut the property. Like the one across the street here um, took seven trees down. Just yeah. and you know maybe three of them needed to come down. You know, but that that affects if if you know. This that's just continues that, to happen. It's it's affecting the long term plan. Right. They just want the wood. They want the right. Well, and, and interestingly enough, you know, because he did cut that down, he had to put two trees in for every one that he cut down, and then he just puts these like little popsicles. Uh, what are the arborvitas in? Uh, like, yeah. Those are horrible. Right. Instead of replacing, they're putting Some in the big. Purse. Exactly, and so. Yeah. And that and that's the thing. It's like we need to get back to respecting and value, valuing nature, and and really looking at like 
how much is it that we really need? Do we do we need a five thousand square foot home, <laughs> or or can we live a little bit more moderately and protect our environment and right. in nature? Right. Yeah, how to live within Some it. Some neighborhoods of five thousand square foot home is small. That that's very true. <laughs> so, uh, just one other thing about CO two uh, is that uh, only. 3.6% of greenhouse gases are CO2. Mm-hmm. So you have all these greenhouse gases. And only 3.5% of that, those of that CO2 mm-hmm. is from humans. Wow. So the, the human, we're focused on the CO2 thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not looking at other solutions. And it may be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And they've created... Carbon markets, carbon credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can sell, and if you don't develop your land, you can sell a carbon credit to somebody who's polluting, and that gives them the, a way to keep doing whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to make a little money. Oh. This goes on between countries. Oh, wow. And uh, so it's almost like a commodities market. Uh-huh. You know, like when you, uh, corn and soybeans, that there's a there's a market out there. Um, I the didn't other know thing that. that they're doing is. They're, uh, they have environmental, social, and government uh, policies uh, that they're imposing on corporations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this forces the, uh, and they're doing this with banks, and they're doing this with all the big investment mm-hmm. uh, companies. And they're signing agreements to divert money away from the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. in order to get a higher score. And then uh, they're developing technology so that you mm-hmm. will have your own personal ESG score. And mm-hmm. uh, your credit card company can determine whether they're going to let you buy certain things because your carbon footprint's getting too big. Or maybe they don't want you to have a gun. Or maybe they don't want you to have a, uh, you know, a classic car or something that you want to buy and mm-hmm. have fun with. Uh, and so through all this technology and ca- connectivity the credit card companies are kind of buying into being the, the, the arbiters of how you live your life. Wow. Whether you can get a plane ticket, or you've been flying too much this year. Well, I'm retired. I've been waiting my whole life. Oh, well, I'm sorry. You, you can't fly anymore. So they're, <clears throat> they're building up to that. Uh, have you heard about the Chinese social credit score? Yes, I have. They lock people up. And all that. well, that's what it is. Well, that's so, what's going on over there right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, if if and they'll be able to track every purchase. <clears throat> They're going to put sensors in the products that you buy so that it can follow that product to your location or maybe link it to your credit card so they know what you're buying, where you're buying it, and what you do with it. Uh, all that is emanating from this. Uh, restructuring of the energy economy and all this technology it's the tech companies uh, the, uh, the green energy companies and mm-hmm. governments uh, and, and then there's clubs uh, like the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. where uh, world leaders and wealthy uh, investors meet and they decide on some strategy that they're going to steer the world in a certain direction because they have enough money and power to do that right and that's all happening from co2 and i'm sitting here going it's three and a half percent of the three and a half percent 
of the greenhouse gases, which are uh, less than 1% mm -hmm. of the total atmospheric gases, what we're changing our whole world and our whole way of life for something that may not add up. And then we get to the end of the line and we, you might have thought, well, I'd be happy, you know, letting them keep me from having too big a carbon footprint if I knew that was going to help the environment because I love the environment. Right. Well, the problem with that is that it isn't. It's actually going to make it worse. Well, it's a narrative that is feeding agen uh, their agenda for control, right. unfortunately. Well, it, you know, and you could call that a conspiracy theory, but unfortunately it's true. So right? It doesn't qualify. <laughs> I could go on more about the climate, but I'm not going to do that. I, I will mention one thing is that <clears throat> a lot of these narratives are based on computer models mm -hmm. uh, and what uh, they project is going to happen. I have a problem at home, too. <laughs> is going to happen in the future mm -hmm. uh, if we don't change. So they they say we're not going to adapt. You know, people, individuals like us are not going to be responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, going to, it's going to go off the cliff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, and so they have these models and they project that it's going to be three times warmer in by uh, 2030. Mm -hmm. And actually the measurements show that it's only one third as much. Wow. So they project, they use these models to project an exaggerated amount of global warming and then attach some kind of panic to that. Because mm -hmm. if you really looked at the, uh, you, you had the presentation, if you mm -hmm. look at the two lines, you see one's almost flat and the other one goes from corner to corner. Right. It's really hard to build an argument on a flat graph. Right. So, <clears throat> um, I think what I'm going to do is skip some stuff. Okay. Uh, and kind of get into the carbon dioxide thing. So there's these big cycles that has to do with the ocean, mm -hmm. the alignment of the planets, mm -hmm. the cloud cover, uh, how much uh, uh, how much foliage is on the Earth, mm -hmm. how much water the the Earth absorbs. All these things affect the climate. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and the CO2, and it's a huge system. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's unlikely that we're responsible for all that. But you, you might say, well, what about the greedy fossil fuel companies? Aren't they hurting people? Well, it's interesting that uh, three billion people around the world heat their homes <clears throat> with biomass, which is either animal dung or wood oh, or really? coal. Uh -huh. And they live in huts that have a hole in the roof for mm -hmm. air to get out. And they, they breathe in this polluted air. It's got a lot of particulates in it, which mm -hmm. are very unhealthy. And primarily the women and children, they're all poor indigenous people of color, mm -hmm. uh, are getting all these illnesses and diseases and dying at a young age. Mm -hmm. Men are out working in the fields so or out doing labor so they don't, aren't affected as much. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but that's the largest source of air pollution, mm -hmm. of death from air pollution, is because people don't have efficient gas heaters uh, or uh, heaters that are, use clean coal. Mm -hmm. 
they can use manure and, and take the methane off the manure and burn it for, for heat and mm -hmm. light in their homes. Mm -hmm. And they don't have that. Uh, and so there's 3 billion people around the world that oh. they had a cheap, reliable source of energy. Right. <clears throat> we could save their lives, basically. Right. Pull them out of poverty. That's a very good point. So. And then, you know, with the current things, with the inflation and everything that's happening because of the energy markets, who gets hurt the most? Who's the one that can't buy food? Who's the one that can't put gas in the cards? The poor indigenous people of color in our country and everywhere else around the world yeah. that are the most impacted by these energy policies. Right. And, uh, and they say, well, we promise you jobs. Well, there's no jobs, you know, in the windmill industry they're, they're made in china mm -hmm. and the solar panels are made in china the, the mining is done in africa mm -hmm. and uh, in south america usually by poor indigenous people of color well and i was reading an article too of children are the ones working in the mines yeah, the as cobalt, well too yeah uh, so do you think energy policy is a human rights issue uh very much so don't we agree on that with our fellow Americans, fellow Oregonians that don't think the way we do, we both think the same thing. Right. We're, we're, we're all concerned about human rights. Right. Well, it's just that we have different information. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the uh, current energy sources, natural gas, <coughs> conventional and advanced coal and nuclear, mm -hmm. uh, and you compare that to wind, offshore wind, solar panels, that uh, there's a premium that you pay for this green energy. Bill Gates explains mm -hmm. that we have to do green energy, but the thing is we'll have to pay a, a premium, premium, a dollar premium, mm -hmm. which is the extra cost. Well, these new technologies are three times as expensive yep. as the traditional technologies. Some of the things that are offsetting it now are there's subsidies in place. Mm -hmm. But if they remove those subsidies, then uh, you'll get the full impact. But we're paying for it every day when we fill up our car. We pay for it every day when we go to the grocery, grocery store. store. Uh, yep. We pay for it when we turn the heat on in our homes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're paying the green premium, and many of us can't afford it. Yep. Bill Gates can. Yep. And he thinks it's a good idea. So so the Oregon Green Plan, uh, now that we understand some of the basics about the human impact on the climate and the environment, mm -hmm. I want to look at some pathways to solving the problems using readily available methods mm -hmm. uh, that we can implement and scale up now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they don't negatively impact fuel prices. Mm -hmm. They don't risk creating energy shortages or blackouts. They reduce the possibility of food shortages and they help to restore the water tables. Mm -hmm. They produce many entry-level jobs for untrained individuals with upside career potential in uh, essential labor sectors. So uh, it's a good plan. And right. We also, uh, what, what we do is we, instead of being a people-centered environmentalist, mm -hmm. we're going to be the nature-centered environmentalist. And the secondary gain from that is that we're part of nature. Nature will take care of us along with everything else if we get ourselves in line with what, what has to happen. It's very much cyclical. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to protect, manage, and restore natural systems. We want to avoid greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. 
We want to increase carbon sequestration, mm -hmm. uh, and we want to focus on forests, wetlands, grasslands, and agricultural lands. Yeah. And um, what is your opinion on regenerative farming in this process, mm -hmm. uh, and looking at doing farming different than what we have been? I think there's a promise there. I don't know the details. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was running for Congress, I met a few farmers. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been d down in their neck of the woods lately. And I, one of the things I want to do is, you know, sit down for coffee and just ask them, well, what do you think? Is this going to work? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, our farmers and foresters, they understand more about the environment than our politicians and yep. bankers and credit card companies will ever understand. And... If they're incentivized to do the right things, they'll do the right things. Yep. If they're punished, they'll, you know, they'll do the wrong things. Well, and I, because I um, followed the gubernatorial forum, or you know, um, through the primaries yeah. and and the generals and everything like that, and so I got to travel all over the state, and it was really interesting listening to the ranchers and the farmers and 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 their take, and it's like they're very well aware and they've got some great sure. ideas. They're incredibly smart, intelligent people. Right. And and it's like, wow. And that's one of my things is I really want to, you know, in the springtime go travel to eastern and central Oregon and really give voice because they are the experts in their fields. They know what they need. Right. And and I think it's very important that our leadership listen to them. Right. You know. <clears throat> I think that's what's missing. Yeah. So um Natural climate solutions is something that's been around for a long time. There's a lot of uh, methodology that's been proven to mm -hmm. be effective. And what's happened is <clears throat> uh, all of the traditional conservation and environmental groups, the Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy, mm -hmm. all these other uh, groups uh, have had the narrative taken away from them by these high-tech, global, uh, financial interests mm -hmm. and so what we're starting to see at these uh, worldwide conferences like the COP26 and the COP27 these are big environmental conferences mm -hmm. <clears throat> these nature groups are complaining that all this money trillions and trillions of dollars is being committed to windmills and solar panels mm -hmm. and they're saying you can't do what you want you what you say you're going to do without us right you need our, our help and yet they're only getting 30 percent of the funding uh, wow, and, uh, really? Yeah. Let me see. I had a, I want to get the numbers right. Sorry for putting you through this little pause. No, it's okay. <clears throat> but let's see. According to uh, Nature for Climates, Nature, the number four, Climate, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you go to their website, and they say that they can provide a third of the solution to climate change. They only get 3% of the funding and 10% of the media attention. Wow. <clears throat> but my my proposal is they're way more part of the solution than 30%. Right. And they ought to be getting 100% mm -hmm. funding. And we ought to have a big conversation about that. Yep. I, I think we need to redirect our energy and redirect our funding mm -hmm. to someone who can solve the problem and stop meddling in our economy, mm -hmm. uh, in our en energy sector. Uh, in our farming sector, they're just getting their tentacles into everything, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's all about climate change. Mm -hmm. and everybody thinks, oh, climate change is crazy, I'm not going to pay any attention. Well, we better start paying attention. Mm -hmm. 
because <clears throat> this stuff is happening. It is. So what do we do? Are there things that we as individuals can do? Um, and um, I have some very detailed slides that I won't, <clears throat> won't bore you with. There's some uh, regenerative uh, agricultural practices and there's some farming uh, organizations, Rain Shadow Organics mm -hmm. in uh, Azure Standard mm -hmm. <clears throat> that are uh, making gains in that and they have very unique... Uh, family-run farms where they grow the food and then they distribute it mm -hmm. uh, over a wide area of fresh food. And uh, they use uh, delivery services and um, they create, uh, it's kind of like Amazon. They're using some of the same techniques oh, as really? Amazon where they, <clears throat> they'll have a certain pickup location, so mm -hmm. they'll move the product if that's been ordered, pre-ordered, mm -hmm. it goes to the pickup location and then the people that ordered it come to that location just like um, uh, Amazon uses uh, uh, Whole Foods mm -hmm. as a distribution uh, outlet for, and then you see these cubbies in Whole Foods for people uh -huh. picking up their Amazon packages. So, kind of like that. And then there's oh, wow. vertical farming. Uh huh. It's a new technology. They have a facility in Jackson, Wyoming. I can uh huh. Show you a picture of this. You can ooh and ah. Very modern appearing. Oh yeah. It looks like an office building. Uh huh. <clears throat> it's glass all around and on top, so it lets the light in. And they have a method of growing. They can grow up to 2 million pounds of produce annually in this little office building. Wow. 70 by 150 feet or something. That's uh, fascinating. I, I might be off on those dimensions, but it's not uh -huh. a big building. <clears throat> and they can, uh, they're expanding and enhancing their process into other population centers. They have another place that they uh they're building in uh portland maine mm -hmm. uh they have their own architectural wow. uh, methods that they've developed uh -huh. and um they don't use water they don't use fertilizers they don't use pesticides um and uh, many of the production jobs rec that they created are being filled by people with mental and physical disabilities <clears throat> so there is an example of a new technology mm -hmm. that doesn't have any negative impact and mm -hmm. addresses every part of the problem and uh, I don't know if there's any negatives I haven't read any negatives it's all brand new wow. uh, so next time you're in Jackson Wyoming you gotta go visit <laughs> take a road trip well my thing is is if they don't use water they what? use the water <laughs> but it's keep it's continuously recycled oh, okay <clears throat> they grow the plants in water they don't uh -huh. grow them in soil uh-huh so they don't need more and more water. It's very limited amount of water, just whatever their startup is, from what oh, I understand. Wow. I have to look into it. Now. This is fascinating. <clears throat> it's called vertical gardening. Vertical farming. Vertical farming. Okay, I'll have there's to a, look into that. There's a website called Vertical Harvest. Okay. You can go and you can read all about it. Excellent. I'll yeah. have to write that it's down. That's really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. And, the, you know, these ideas are, are very uh, popular that... Uh, there's a lot of uh, support uh, uh, based on nationwide polls <clears throat> for a uh, goal of planting a trillion trees worldwide mm -hmm. uh, to absorb carbon emissions, uh, green infilling uh, around populated areas. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when we build a housing development, we strip everything off the land, plop the house and a bunch of hard surfaces mm -hmm. uh, on there so the water doesn't get absorbed, and then plant lawns. 
and a bunch of plants that need uh, drip irrigation, pesticides, mm -hmm. fertilizers, and they, we use uh, uh, lawnmowers and blowers uh, to maintain them. Do you know that a leaf blower, mm -hmm. a two-cycle, one of those gas-powered ones that, that makes so much noise, mm -hmm. that running one of those for a half an hour is equivalent to the emissions put out by a Ford F-150 truck driving from Texas to Alaska. No way, right. really. So imagine if you could just wow. landscaping. So uh -huh. Even if you use one of those, you used it for a half hour less mm -hmm. every week. That would be like not taking a 4,000 mile road trip. That's significantly different. Yeah. Wow. It's from the New York Times. Wow. It's, uh, actually, there's an article from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it's called, The First Thing We Do, Let's Kill All the Leaf Blowers. <coughs> well, the first thing we do is let's change the way we landscape mm -hmm. and reduce the amount of leaf blowers we need to use. But mm -hmm. eliminating them is difficult. Anyway, um, so we need to provide credits for people and businesses mm -hmm. <clears throat> to engage in reforesting our, the spaces we live in. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's a, uh, there's a program uh, that's described by a man named Doug Tallamy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> He's written a few books. They're mm -hmm. very fun books to read. Uh -huh. I really like his books. Um, and uh, he is uh, an entomologist. He studies insects. Oh, okay. <clears throat> insects are sort of at the base of our um, uh, food chain, which is now called a food web because it's so... And they're wanting us to start eating them. Yeah. <laughs> Different podcasts. more than we do. <laughs> but the... Um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Nature's Best Hope. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very good. And then there's another one called The Nature of Oaks. You'll never look at an oak tree the same way after you read that. But he points out <clears throat> that if we change the way we landscape around our homes, mm -hmm. uh, he points out that lawns are like a desert to uh, the biome. They, they don't exchange... Uh, CO2 well, mm -hmm. uh, they require more water than any other kind of plant to keep green. Mm -hmm. uh, they require fertilizers and pesticides and lawnmowers, and they they give nothing back. They don't provide any nourishment or bi or don't support biodiversity. <clears throat> they just they're like a desert mm -hmm. to uh, nature, and uh, so he points out that there's. 44 million acres of lawn in the United States. Wow. <clears throat> and if we could convert half of that back to natural occurring plantings, mm -hmm. either flowers or trees or mm -hmm. whatever, to support the biodiversity, uh, instead of the biodiversity being over there in the national park, we could bring it in, we'd make our whole country a national park. He calls it the homegrown national park. And it's and if you had 50% of the lawns, would be uh, would be bigger than the size of New England. Wow. And we would reforest it. And uh, the combined size of that amount of land would be equivalent to the size of 
Yellowstone plus Yosemite plus the Grand Tetons plus the Canyonlands and Mount Rainier, the North Cascades, the Badlands, the Olympics, the Grand Canyon, the Denali, the Great Smoky Mountains, all combined. Wow. So we could do that just by you planting a couple of oak trees in your backyard or a couple mm-hmm. of trees back there. And then <clears throat> don't have a lawn around the bottom of the tree because the stuff that falls from the tree is nutrients for all the bugs. And without bugs, you don't have birds because when birds have babies, they don't feed them seeds and nuts. They feed them bugs. Mm-hmm. They require 1,500 bugs a day for the average sparrow baby bird. And so the, the mothers, the parents have to go out and, and accumulate these bugs. And when you blow all the leaves away from underneath your tree or you plant a lawn up to the base of the tree, you're eliminating all of that area where the bugs propagate in the ground. They, they get under the mulch from the leaves wow. and the bacteria that, that form from the mm-hmm. rotting leaves and the, the moisture in the ground allows those bugs to go down and they go through a point in their life life cycle and then they come back out of the ground and they either come up onto the ground or they go up the tree and that's where the birds find them and they feed them to their babies and it's a it's a fundamental part of the food chain and so i say we don't need to be eating the bugs we need to be helping the birds eat more bugs right 1500 a day that's a huge number yeah Yeah. those parents are busy yeah wow one of the most prolific trees is and Oregon only has 3% of the original white oak trees that were here uh, before the settlers came. <clears throat> so wow. oaks provide more nutrition to a greater uh, uh, breadth of mm-hmm. biodiversity because they have uh, the acorns and mm-hmm. they, have, uh, uh, they are particularly good for uh, the life cycle of the bugs and all that stuff. So. Wow, that's an interesting fact. Yeah. And, you know, Timber Unity had uh, a proposal that they made mm-hmm. to <clears throat> plant 51 million trees along the rights, right-of-ways of mm-hmm. all the roads owned by ODOT or managed by ODOT. And uh, there's a, a state bill that passed... Um, Senate Bill 1450, mm-hmm. which sets a goal to reduce carbon emissions to 45% of the 1990 levels by 2035. If you followed their plan of planting 51 million trees, and they did all the math, it's totally possible. Mm-hmm. And also carbon sequestering vegetation, which would be native Oregon species, and mm-hmm. you know, like a double canopy forest. Mm-hmm that you would sequester 5 billion pounds of carbon a year. And then if you added in the counties and the municipalities, Mm -hmm. you added in businesses, uh, like there's one place drives me crazy is uh, there's a uh, corporate building in Wilsonville, Mm -hmm. and they have oak trees planted all over with lawns up to the bottom of the oak trees. And I just thought all they have to do is just take out the lawn in the uh-huh. perimeter of the oak trees, and they would reduce their carbon footprint 
immensely. They increase biodiversity and, and probably reduce their costs. Wow. And what I think, you know, as a congressman, I wanted to, one of the solutions to be to implement something like the uh, national uh, home homegrown national park, right, and, and promote it into uh, corporate parks, mm-hmm. universities, wherever there's non-essential lawn where you're not using it put a blanket on and you're not using it to play a game on mm-hmm. a lot of people just have lawns for the visual effect mm-hmm. <clears throat> if we replaced uh, a lot of those uh, lawns and the uh, local municipalities would say if you planted uh, three oak trees that uh, they would reduce your water your surface water fee a certain amount or your property, if you had property like in the country, mm-hmm. instead of having a big empty field, if you planted it with native, even native grasses, if you want to have a field, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, native species that you would get a tax tax break on your property taxes, kind of like a rural uh, a farmer uh, uh-huh. a, a tax deferral tax. for farming, that if you were just a person and you dedicated that land to revegetating it, Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then they would have people like they already have with the Audubon Society and other groups. And you can actually go on some of these websites and put your uh, uh, zip code in. Mm-hmm. And it will tell you what native plants uh, would be best in your area. Oh, nice. Uh, so I think the Nature Conservancy has that and I mm-hmm. think the Audubon Society has that. Okay. And uh, so if everybody did that and then you would get a, a break on your property tax and you say, well, why should I? Well... You're, you're reducing the amount of infrastructure that needs to be built. You're reducing the amount of surface water. Mm-hmm. You're improving the soils. You're improving biodiversity. You're doing all these things that <clears throat> benefit the community, and the, and the government's not doing it. They mm-hmm. pay you instead of you paying taxes and then letting them use the money to build windmills. Right. Yeah. Wow. This is fascinating. It's interesting stuff. No, and it's it's good news. It's positive news. Yeah. This is solution focused like right. change we're talking here. Right. Right. That we can all be a part of. Right. You know. And that's what I that's why I tell you the leaf blower story and the oak tree story. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, uh a friend of mine knows that I'm into this and he sent me he's in the oil industry. Uh-huh. And he sent me this little um uh, blog little uh what are we doing here called a podcast podcast yeah yes i'm so technical <laughs> uh, it was a podcast and these two nerdy engineers uh-huh <clears throat> and normally they talk about fracking and things like that and, mm-hmm. and uh, petroleum issues but they uh, wanted to figure out Everybody's in these traffic jams. Uh huh. <clears throat> and how long should you sit in a traffic jam with your motor running mm-hmm. uh, before you turn it off and then turn it back on? How how long a period of time would make a difference? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they did this calculation and they used the total number of uh, commuters in the United States or something like that. And they did all the math, and um, it turns out that if you don't let your car idle for more than 15 seconds mm-hmm. you turn it off. If everybody did that, that it would be the same as uh, all the Teslas that they could produce over the next 20 years. You wouldn't need to do that because just turning the motor off when you're not actually moving 
is enough. You ever see people, they sit outside a Starbucks or mm-hmm. a parking lot and they have the engine running and the air conditioner on. It's not even hot out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or at a gas station now that the yeah. lines are so long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same thing, too. So, I mean, just simple. That We can do that. You can start today. Yep. <clears throat> and you can make a big difference. And if everybody knew that we could do that, then all of us in our state, in our country, we could all unite together. We could all be part of the same great thing. Mm-hmm. And we can do something that we all want. Right. No? Right. And, and I do because I've been kind of <clears throat> looking into, you know, the, the green alternatives that are being promoted. And the big one is, too, is like with the electric cars. I really recommend people research what the batteries are made out of and where that's coming from and and do a deep dive on that and then ask the question of okay is that any more beneficial than what we're hearing about fossil fuels and what's going to be the long-term effects of as we continue to mine all that stuff too um and and just really research that or research how what is the lifespan of a windmill you know, and then what happens to it once it's no longer viable? You right. know, where do they go? Well, uh, it's, uh, the carbon footprint to create uh, an electronic car mm-hmm. is much more than uh, it takes to create a gas or diesel-powered personal vehicle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it would take nine years or 80,000 miles of driving your electronic car to make up for the increased carbon footprint that was used to create it. Mm-hmm. And the batteries in the, these cars have a lifespan of about 10 years. Mm-hmm. So then you got to go create a battery. And, um, and where do those batteries go once they don't work anymore? Let's see. battery, if we used our highest capacity factory today to push out as many batteries as possible, mm-hmm. it would take 500 years to make enough batteries to last, to hold the energy needed in the United States for one day. Wow. And there aren't enough mines and there, no. there's not enough resources to do that. You can't do that. And they say, well, Battery technology will get better. Well, right now it's maxed out, and we don't know mm-hmm. what's going to make it, it better. So right now it's not working. And every battery weighs about a half a ton, mm-hmm. and they're made from non-renewable materials, so they, get, they go in landfills. Mm-hmm. They require moving and processing 250 tons of earth somewhere on the planet for each battery. And uh, there's a great video on Prager mm-hmm. unobtainium it's six minutes mm-hmm. and it's very very interesting he talks about uh, the production and the recycling and all of that yep <clears throat> and um, in order for them to meet the goals they have of building all these batteries and all these materials, it's going to take a 200 to 2,000% increase in the amount of mining Mm -hmm. that's currently being done. So that's an extraction industry where they destroy usually a pristine area. Mm -hmm. You don't put them in people's neighborhood. Right. It goes out way out somewhere. 
and they're actually proposing one on the border of uh, Nevada and Oregon. <clears throat> and the mine, that they, they have to get a permit uh, for uh, decommissioning the mine and cleaning up the environment. Mm -hmm. And the area that they've had the permit for is almost 10 miles in diameter. So this wow. big hole, 10 miles in diameter, or in, you know, associated land and roads and mm -hmm. things got torn up for one lithium mine, and multiply that times 2,000. Right. So we're really solving the problem. No. And then there's no way to dispose of it. Mm -hmm. So the batteries end up in landfills in third world countries where poor indigenous people of color, sometimes children, mm -hmm. uh, are uh, exposed to toxic waste. And you're just creating a toxic waste problem. Right. The, the, the volume of toxic waste from solar panels in 10 years is going mm -hmm. to be, uh, I think, equivalent equivalent to the amount of plastics that we dispose of each year. Yeah. And each one of us individually disposes of about 300 pounds of single-use plastic a year. Wow. In a developed country like ours. And then other less developed countries that end up in streams and in the ocean. And that's why there's an island in the Pacific the size of Texas. It's just all plastic, plastic. floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yep. So we've got to change things. <laughs> well, we do. And I mean, I know that, um, you know, a lot of people say nuclear energy is bad, but it, it is one of the purest, cleanest forms of energy, too. And, and to, to look into that. But then also, too... Um, the powers of B. There's there's new technology that's been around for a very long time that they've they've kept secret or out right. that we could be looking at of another energy like hydrogen or whatever right. to to right. to help the know, issue. I don't know much about hydrogen. Yeah. <clears throat> but the nuclear thing is they're building the plants are smaller that they can fit. I think in uh, the size of a few tractor trailer. Mm-hmm. They can build a nuclear plant on a very small piece of earth. One of the problems with solar panels and um, windmills is they take up so much land. Space, yeah. There's not enough land to, to put enough solar panels and windmills to meet the needs of our energy mm -hmm. uh, grid. And so there's not enough land. There, it requires thousands of times more mining than before it creates toxic waste mm -hmm. and we're not even sure that carbon's the problem right and so you know we have to stop we have to start the conversation mm -hmm. and stop the combative thing the we're rhetoric still, we're all we all live here together yep uh, and we don't need to be divided up by any criteria that you mm -hmm. want to think of because Nobody I know of really cares about all the different tribes that have been carved out. We're Americans. We don't care about that stuff. Yeah. That, that doesn't matter to us. Yeah. What matters to us is, <clears throat> are you contributing? Mm -hmm. Are you living harmoniously with your other fellow Americans? Um, can we have a conversation? Mm -hmm. Can I get to know you? Um, we don't care what your differences are, so you don't have to put that as your calling card. Yeah. Your calling card ought to be, I'm an American, I care about America, I care about Oregon, I want to make things better. That should be our calling card. I agree, 100%. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, John, for coming on the show today. Is there anything else that you'd like to to add? I know she's <laughs> she's got something to say too. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot more <coughs> detail around uh, the negative <coughs> impacts of the current technology, which I could go into. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe come back another day. I would love to have you come back on the show and share more. So and you're a wealth of way, knowledge. Someone who's been able to put up with me through this discussion could <laughs> at least have enough confidence they might want to listen to that but i i don't want to lead with the bad news and i don't want to start by wagging my finger at somebody and, and kind of scolding right what i want to do is i want to welcome people to the discussion i'm i'm willing if you want to get another person in here oh yeah think like i think and uh and we can try this out. I, I, I actually, I would love to do that. Um, I'm looking at a place to hold like a forum so there can actually be a panel and to, to have a discussion. Because honestly, I feel this is the only way that we're going to change this is actually having respectful, open dialogue right. with people that see things differently right. and, and, and to ask the questions and to, to debate in a positive way. And, and to really realize we are not pitted against each other, right. you know, this, this whole mindset is, it needs to, to change. And I think people are ready, yeah. you know, I think yeah. what we've seen the last few years, people are ready for something different. Yeah. And I think um, part of the reason I ran for Congress is I don't think people talk like this in Congress. And whatever their priorities are, they're probably political or financial mm -hmm. and they're not they're, they're losing track of what the people really want and they're not talking to the people about what they're going to do to fix the problem exactly they're just pointing the fingers back and forth mm -hmm. and uh, heating up rhetoric and stirring up uh, a lot of disharmony among one of the most integrated harmonious uh, tolerant nations that has ever been on the planet Mm -hmm. And they're thinking of every way they can to divide us. And uh, I think the things that hold us together are much greater than anything that could possibly divide us. I, I am 100% agreement with you. I mean, I, I'm a holistic practitioner by trade. And I just, you know, with, I got into medical freedom, which would led me into politics. And um, being in it a year and a half now. And seeing the political game and what occurs, and even even leaders that want to come in and they have really good intentions, they can get lost in that political game, right. and they forget of what's the real reason why they're there, and that's to be into service to the people, but be a part of creating some positive change. And so, yeah, so I'm excited. I would love to have you back and. Uh, continue this discussion and look about getting more people okay. that be a part of a conversation. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And can you, if people are interested in reaching out to you, do you have um, like social media or website or anything like that? Okay. Second uh, time you if, come. Um, I'm currently using my personal email and I, uh, and I kind of saturated it. Okay. Uh, so when the website comes out, there will be uh, a separate email. Excellent. We'll create and also, I'll be uh, populating the website. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of, you go, well, how am I going to build this website? It has to be this and that. I, <clears throat> I think the website's going to just be kind of like a filing cabinet. Mm -hmm. And uh, there might be a page where there's an updated 
you know, the latest stuff that I found. Mm -hmm. And then just categories like solar, recycling, you know, plastics, whatever. Yep. And just be categories and people can just click and they can go. And I think what they'll find is that there's a whole web mm -hmm. of other uh, sites that specialize in each area of that where they can dig and dig and dig. And they can really dig deeper. Right. And yeah. As much information as they want. Yeah, and also, too, just to let you know, there's something called Linktree, too, which is really nice, kind of similar to, like, a website, but where people, you can set it to where you can have your social media on there, resources, everything. So that's another option. So all this fun stuff. I know. I am, too. I'm learning as I go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and God bless you. And yeah, I really appreciated you having on the show. And thank you, listeners. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Peace, y'all. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to check out our website at www.betweentwoparties.com for more information and links from today's episode. Also, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. Our social media sites are Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, Truth Social, CloudHub, Rumble, and YouTube. If you like what you hear and you want to support our grassroots podcast for change, all donations are graciously accepted through Venmo. May we all look past our differences to realize we the people have more in common than we have differences. We all love our freedoms, our children, our grandchildren, and we are committed to leave a better world for our future generations. We are stronger together than we are divided. So let's start building a bridge of unity. Until next time, peace y'all, and remember, love always wins. <laughs>